Hey, well, good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. This morning we're continuing our uh, sermon series called Survey Says, as you probably gathered from the video. And that uh, sermon series were subjects collected by survey from you guys that you felt it was important that we talk about. And uh, so the subject that we're covering this morning is uh, depression, anxiety, or more generally, uh, mental illness. And uh, given the, the snow this morning and lack of sun this week, perhaps it's the most appropriate Sunday to address that, uh, that subject. And then, of course, we uh, surveyed you this week, and uh, I'll be giving you some of those results uh, during the sermon uh, related to mental illness as it affects us uh, specifically here at Bethany. And so I have to admit, this is probably one of the more difficult sermons uh, I've ever had to prepare for, because normally when you're preparing for a sermon, you know, you have either a passage of scripture that you're going to expound from and, and draw to, truth from, uh, or you have a, a topic, uh, you know, like righteousness or forgiveness, you know, and you're going to look at that theme through scripture and then draw principles and application from that. But when it comes to this subject of mental illness or depression, it's not a subject that is addressed directly in scripture. It's dealt more with by example and metaphor and perhaps collected wisdom that applies in multiple situations, and we'll look at, at, at some of that today. So it's a bit more difficult, and it's one of the reasons, actually, that Christians struggle a little bit or don't talk about this subject because it's not directly dealt with in Scripture, and so there is a bit of a, uh, a silence on the subject uh, in the church in general. But it's something that I think is really important. I agree with you all who said it's important that we address this issue because it is so prevalent in the culture. 300 million people worldwide suffering from severe depression. 15 million major diagnosed depressive disorder, or 7% of the population. 15% of Americans are taking medication to deal with specifically depression. And when we polled you here in the congregation... Uh, the response was that 67% of you said yes, you had suffered at some point in your life with depression or some other major illness, and 84% said yes, they knew somebody close to them, family member, relative, close friend who had gone through these types of uh, struggles. So those are some very high numbers, and it's important that we address this issue. It's also important because there's mounting research that this is on the rise, in our culture, and that our culture actually produces depression, anxiety, and mental illness like candy produces tooth decay. The way things are kind of going in our culture related to unhealthy boundaries with life and work and relationships and relational insecurity between friends and in the nuclear family, substance abuse, the available availability of addictive escapism and pornography, and media, and even social media, the bombardment of information, a lot of which is primarily driven by fear and anxiety. That's num one of the number one ways uh, that is known to use to keep you on that site or uh, uh, coming back to that news media source is fear and anxiety as a main way to keep you glued to that so they can show you more ads. And so these things... Uh, and then with social media, these things start to breed. Um, there's definitely a correlation, and now they've discovered causation even with increased usage of social media is increased 
experience of depression in the general population because of things like comparison and negativity and fear and anxiety driving some of those sites as well. And so in the general population or in our culture, you're seeing on the rise things like uncertainty and insignificance and feelings of powerlessness and self-destructive escapism, loneliness and isolation, fear and anxiety, and all of these things are the perfect stew (laughs) for depression and for mental illness. And so um, within the population, it's on the rise, and within the church, not talked about so much, But that's starting to change, um, particularly as you see uh, some well-known national uh, voices, folks like uh, Randy Alcorn or Rick Warren or Tommy Nelson, some of these others who have a national platform, Charles Stanley, beginning to talk about their experience with depression and anxiety and teaching on that. And um, nationally, half of churches in the United States Half of those polled in major national Christian studies said they had never heard in a church any type of teaching on the subject. And when we polled you guys, you said 66% of you said no, you had never heard teaching on mental illness or depression in any church that you had been associated with. But again, it's beginning to be talked about more in the national conversation because of some of these significant personalities that are talking about it. One of the ones that I was most impressed with, uh, one of the books I read was related specifically to Charles Spurgeon, who uh, was known as the Prince of Preachers and could be argued was the first celebrity megachurch pastor of uh, of the modern age who suffered with debilitating lifelong depression, but very oddly for the time period that he lived in was extremely vulnerable and open about it and preached about it. Here's a couple of things that Spurgeon had to say. He said, I do not suppose there's any person in this assembly who's ever had stronger fits of depression of spirits than I have myself personally. I'm subject of depression, so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Personally, I know there is nothing on earth that the human frame can endure to be compared to the despondency and prostration of mind. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Very poetic words uh, from Spurgeon describing his own experience, and I've interspersed some quotes from him this morning that you'll hear as we go along. So how should the church view this issue of mental illness? In one sense, the answer is actually quite simple. The, The simple answer is we should view it just as we do any other illness, and no differently. That's the simple answer. But the other answer is actually that it's a very complex issue. And it's an issue that's complex because it involves the whole person, biological and emotional and spiritual components, which is another reason that it's difficult, not just for Christians, but for people in general to know what to do and how to react to those that they love or themselves when they experience those things, because it is a very complex issue. It's easy for us to respond when somebody breaks their arm or they have surgery, you know, it's almost intuitive, you know, how we can respond and help them. But when it's this complex issue that is difficult to deal with and may take an extended period of time, it's hard for us to know what to do sometimes. And it's another reason that we kind of almost pass it off to the 
professionals in terms of dealing with it. And when thinking about uh, mental illness, both Christian and non-Christian, there's kind of a, a spectrum in terms of how to approach it. So you have on one end of the spectrum, those who argue primarily for the biological, that this is a biological problem that has a biological or medical response to it, which is certainly true. It involves things like serotonin and thyroid disorder and seasonal affective disorder, brain injuries, postpartum depression, surgery, sort of these biological events or things happening in the body that are at the root or cause of depression. And in fact, the body, sometimes it's interesting reading testimonies of, uh, of even uh, uh, of pastors who loved their life and were, were just super busy, but loved what they were doing, perfectly happy, and then one day their body just shut down. And they slipped into a major depression that they had no idea was coming because the body just responds to these stimuli of stress and anxiety or other things chemical going on in the body. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, The Saddest Cry of the Cross, says, Quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real reason for grief and yet may become among the most unhappy of men because for the time your body has conquered your soul. So there's this biological element to depression and mental illness. And then sort of on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps more in the, the Christian realm, there's the, um, the emphasis on the spiritual as it, as it uh, pertains to the origin of depression in, in life and sin and, and the demonic. Tommy Nelson um, at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary says, before, I, before he had experienced depression, he said, before I would have said, meditate on this verse, pray and quit your sinning. <laughs> that was his response. Not helpful. <clears throat> but there can be this emphasis on sin and, and the demonic sort of on the other end of the spectrum. The truth is that it's both and everything in between those things when it comes to dealing with depression. But sometimes, you know, I think we oversimplify things. Um, you know, there's this, in Scripture we learn about the separation of the body and the soul and the spirit. And oftentimes in terms of our thinking through these subjects and um, uh, theolog theologically thinking about them, we tend to be a bit oversimplistic. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself make you completely whole, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from this verse and a number of others, we learn that all human beings have both material and immaterial components, but that they are they're interrelated. You know, when it comes to this subject, body, soul, and spirit, so the physical, and then the soul, which we often describe as like mind, will, and emotions, and then the spirit, which we assume to be some kind of nuclear, nuclear core, you know, where the Holy Spirit resides, uh, that's kept pure and blameless within us. And we tend to separate these things out overly simplistically when we're dealing, trying to deal with certain issues. I remember when I was a, a young missionary, one of the hot-button issues of the day uh, was Christians and demons. Can Christians be possessed by the demonic? And uh, so the, arg the arguments went along the lines of this body, soul, and spirit. Well, okay, yes, a, a, a Christian could be possessed by a demon or 
influenced by a demon in their body, perhaps even in their soul, but not in their spirit because darkness and light can't dwell together and that's where the Holy Spirit resides. So the arguments would kind of go round and round on those sort of issues. But oftentimes we're overly simplistic when it comes to our application of that theology because we cannot downplay the fact that we are an interconnected unity of personhood. And what affects the body affects the soul. What affects the soul will manifest itself in the body in all kinds of ways. Russell Moore, in his article, Is It Right for a Christian to Take Antidepressants? He says, God created us as whole persons with body and psyche together. The body affects the psyche. Going without food, for example, or sleep will change the way one thinks or feels dramatically. And the psyche affects the body. We don't have bodies or have psyches. We are psychosomatic whole persons made in the image of God. Sarah Robertson, in her provocatively titled testimony article, I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, (laughs) said this, people also don't understand the physicality of depression. A lot of people don't know you're in physical pain. People think you're just sad. For a lot of people... If you're just sad, you're lucky. If you just feel this awful numbness, your chest hurts. A lot of people get diagnosed with depression when they go in thinking they have heart problems because they're having actual chest pain. It's linked to severe chronic illnesses like fibromyalgia and autoimmune disorders. For me, in my worst seasons of depression, I've had constant migraines that lasted for days. You're puking your guts out. You have no energy and can barely get out of bed. Your head is foggy. And so we're these whole integrated persons, and it's very complex in terms of how mental illness and depression affects, so when affects us. So when we're looking at treating this and, and thinking about it just in generally and, and also as Christians, we do treat both the spiritual and the biological. So talking about doctors and medication, sort of this biological treatment of biological symptoms. I would say this, I I don't understand um, what stigma exists regarding, why does that crack me up, regarding um, taking medication. If you're willing to take pain medication for anything else, why not for mental pain? I don't understand it. There's no scriptural injunction against that because there are physical and biological issues that are at play. Again, thyroid disorder, uh, serotonin, acetyl-L-cardinine, these things that we know that get out of whack in the body chemically or in our biological response to things that are going on in our lives. And so these issues may be at play. And the medication that can be prescribed for these things deals with or removes these physical symptoms so that you can deal with the underlying issues at work. It's not a rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's like taking a pain med for a toothache that you, you just can't bear the pain of. It's numbing that pain so that you can get to the doctor to then have the surgery to take care of the underlying issue that's causing you that pain. And medication, when it comes to mental illness, is the same thing. And one thing that we want to be very clear about is that um, regarding sort of this issue of sin in the dump. Um, actually, no, I don't want to go there yet. But it's like t- taking these pain meds to numbness so that we can regard, uh, so that we can 
seek counseling and help in our lives. So regarding that, sort of moving more to the spiritual regarding counseling, again, there's, there can be sort of the stigma out there. There's a lot of Christians that feel like going to a, a psychiatrist or a, a therapist is like King Saul going to visit the Witch of Endor. You know, it's sort of the stigma that is attached to it at times. But it's this counseling that allows us to look at these underlying and contributing issues, whether it's relationships or schedules or habits or substance abuse or grief or abuse that we suffered when we were young, these things that can be causative in dealing in, in manifesting depression and mental illness. And the encouraging thing about going to see somebody and talking about these things is for us it seems so overwhelming and it seems so out of place, but when you go and talk to somebody about it that's a professional in these areas, they deal with it every day. It's commonplace to them, and it can be so encouraging to seek out that counseling. And so regarding sin and the demonic, um, it's in counseling, pastoral counseling, professional counseling, psychiatric care, that we can deal with these underlying issues so that we can find long-term health and healing when it comes to mental illness. And we also want to be sure to say, in talking about, sure, there can be these contributing factors of, of sin and even certainly the demonic, because when you're down, they will pile on you and kick you <laughs> while you're down. We know that. That's what Satan's whole purpose is in life. And so that can be, that can be involved, but we want to make sure that we distinguish that from having or dealing with mental illness yeah, mental illness and depression. It is no sin to have mental illness or depression. It's not an issue of sin, even though there may be sin issues involved, either with you or people in your life that have caused this to happen. Again, Spurgeon says, No sin is necessarily connected with sorrow of heart. For Jesus Christ our Lord once said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. There was no sin in him and consequently none in his deep depression. Depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. I agree with him wholeheartedly. So counseling can help us in this spiritual element or in the, the soul and the spirit dealing with these issues that are non-biological but may be manifesting in the biological to help us figure out what's going on and to deal with them long term. And so... One thing I want to say about that as well is in terms of dealing holistically, biologically and spiritually with these issues that manifest in our life, we also want to keep before us a clear picture of what normal Christian life is like and perspective on what our um, expectations should really be in life. Again, Russell Moore in his article, Is It Right for Christians to Take Antidepressants? I like what he says. He says, the normal human life isn't what is marketed to us by the pharmaceutical industry or by the lives we see projected on movie screens or frankly by a lot of Christian sermons and praise songs. The normal human life is the life of Jesus of Nazareth who sums up in himself everything it means to be human. And the life of Christ presented to us in the Gospels is a life of joy, of fellowship, of celebration, but also of loneliness and profound sadness, of lament, of grief, of anger, of suffering, all without sin. As the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, we don't become giddy or much less emotionally vacant. Instead, the Bible tells us we groan along with the persecuted creation around us. We cry out with Jesus himself, experiencing with him often the agony of Gethsemane. 
And paradoxically, along the way, we join Jesus in joy and peace. The human emotional life is complicated, and a regenerated human emotional life is complicated as well. So we just have to keep that reality before us. So how can we help those who are struggling? 70% of you uh, that we polled said you felt somewhat or strongly agreed that you could support somebody who was dealing with mental health issues or depression. 44% said somewhat or strongly agree that they felt loved and supported by their faith community as they were going through these issues. 30% were neutral on that one. 26% said somewhat or strongly disagree that they felt loved and supported when going through some of these issues. So those are higher than the national average when it comes to these issues but it is something that we continue to struggle with as a church is how can we help those who are dealing with these issues that can be complicated and difficult for us at times. And uh, in Christian counseling today, the church and mental health, what do the numbers tell us? It says this, 70% of Protestants with a mental illness wanted fellow church members merely to get to know them <laughs> as a friend. For consistent church attenders, that number climbed to 78. They just want to be treated like a person which sometimes even those in ministry can forget to do. Amy Simpson, in her book, Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission, says silence sends a clear message that God's not interested in their suffering. Serious problems have no place in the church, and our faith has no answers for hardships like these. And the number one way that we can help those struggling with mental illness is, uh, or that they desire to be helped from their faith community the response that they desire is for us to be present, just to be present in their lives. And that's a temptation, again, not just for Christians, but everybody, because of the complexity sometimes and just the emotional intensity of dealing with some of these issues that we sort of tend to maybe separate ourselves, keep ourselves at arm length, because we're maybe it's not because we don't want to help, but because we don't know how to help. And so we turn it over to, entirely to the professional realm which makes the problem worse for those that are suffering with mental illness because their number one need and desire is to not be isolated and alone during these times. And in fact, that's what God does. And this is some of the scriptures that do actually deal with this issue. In Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Psalm 56, You keep track of my misery. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not recorded in your book? 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares, which could be translated as anxieties, on him because he cares for you. Lamentations 3. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you and you said, do not fear. Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. And burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So God draws near to us when we're brokenhearted, depressed, anxious, struggling with these issues, and we're told to do the same. In Romans 11, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're supposed to be present to draw near to those who are in this kind of pain. 
just as Jesus does. And when we're drawing near, one of the primary things that we can do is simply just to be present in listening with patience. Listening with patience. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the undisciplined, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient towards all. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. It can be hard to talk about, and it takes time to get it out and to process it. Randy Alcorn, in advising those who want to minister to those dealing with depression as he had struggled with in his own life. He says, don't begin with something's horribly wrong or lecture them. Let them talk about and express their experience. We need to have patience in this and to give time because we live in a a quick fix culture where we'd like to just have one counseling session or just, you know, read some verses or have a prayer session and be done with it. And that just doesn't work with mental illness. It's often long-term care that's required, and we need to have space and time and patience is so key in dealing with these things. Kerry Newhoff, who uh, dealt with serious depression, he's a national uh, speaker, a nationally known uh, pastor and author up in Canada, and talking about his own uh, depression and why that came on, he said, many pretend it doesn't hurt when it really does. Worse than that, we don't know what to do with our losses, so we just go back to work. For years, when I read the scriptural stories of how people grieved, I thought to myself, what's wrong with these people? Why did it take 40 days to grieve the death of Moses? Couldn't they just get back to work? Little did I realize that taking the time to grieve your losses is one of the healthiest things you can do. I spent an inordinate amount of time in 2006. In August 2006, crying. It's like all the losses (laughs) I ignored for decades couldn't stay inside anymore. And once they left, I found closure, even healing. Now I pay much more attention to feelings of loss. I pray about them. I process them and shed tears over the deep ones. And then I move on so much healthier. And these things can often, they just take time to process and and to deal with both biologically and spiritually. And these things, they reoccur often in the lives of those dealing with mental illness and grief and depression. Many things can cause reoccurrence of these things. Seasons, smells, events that happen in your life can cause these things to resurface as they remind you of something that you experienced once before in your lives. Zach Eswine in his book, Spurgeon Sorrows, says, When we find ourselves impatient with sadness, we reveal our preference for folly, our resistance to wisdom, and our disregard for depth and proportion. And another thing that Scripture... um, deals with uh, is this issue of Sabbath. We need to have rest in our lives. We need to push against this culture that is creating this stew that's causing it to be an, uh, an issue in increasing measure, depression and anxiety and Sabbath rest and giving yourself uh, time to rest and to, to process and to be present and mindful in how you're living your life is so important. It's one of the things we highlight, one of the reasons we highlight that every summer in our church the last couple of years in July, taking Sabbath as a church because we want you to know that's what 
culture we should ha- we need in our culture. We need it in our church and we need it in our lives. And we want you to have permission to do that, to know that that's part of our culture, that we need rest and Sabbath as we're commanded in Scripture to do if we're going to live healthy lives. We also, in being present and listening and, and just being patient and giving things time, we also need to encourage One of the scriptures that does actually deal directly with this issue of depression, anxiety, and mental illness is Proverbs 12, 25. In some translations, like the New King James, it says, Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. And so we're supposed to come with encouragement when we come and we're we're listening and we're we're spending time and drawing near. We don't want to come with necessarily our judgments and our moralizations and our oversimplifications of what this person has gone through in their life and what they're experiencing. And unfortunately, Christians can often, quite often, they can go medieval and dark ages on you in pretty quick order. Kind of like Job's friends gathering around, seeing his misery and saying, there must be some huge sin going on in your life, brother. Not helpful. Nor is comparison encouragement. Now, I've, I've heard this <laughs> many times. The type of encouragement that's like, hey, man, I work 80 hours a week. My wife and my kids hate me. My neighbor shot my dog. I don't know what you're depressed about, man. Life is just hard. That's not the kind of encouragement that we're talking about. And that devalues what that person has experienced in your life that you may not know or how they're wired differently than you are, and how different stimuli and different events in their lives may be affecting them that might not affect you the same way. And so we need to have love and patience in being encouraging. Again, Brother Spurgeon says, especially judge not the sons and daughters of sorrow. Allow no ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Do not hastily say that they ought to be more brave and exhibit a greater faith. Ask not why are they so nervous and so absurdly, fear, absurdly fearful? No, I beseech you, remember that you understand not your fellow man. And the word of encouragement, bringing a real word of encouragement, can really be significant in the life of, of somebody that's struggling when we're drawing near to them and bringing encouragement. Again, Sarah Robertson, who I quoted earlier, talks about this and people drawing near and bringing that word of encouragement, how significant can, it can be. She said, there were those moments where God would do something that would break through my darkness enough that I could keep going. I showed up at the doorstep of a family I knew about 10 o'clock at night. It was hot, and I literally walked in their living room, and they could instantly tell something's wrong, and I told them I'd been self-harming myself. And they said, okay, you're going to stay with us for a little bit. So they just had me stay with them, cook with them, and treated me like family. And one of the things they said that night that was so powerful After I told them I was scared, I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to make it if I kept trying to do this on my own. They said, I'm not disappointed in you. And that was crazy to me. I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And that was the beginning of the little steps that helped me climb out a little bit, thinking, wow, if these people aren't disappointed in me, when they see me at my worst... Maybe there's a possibility. Maybe there's a possibility that God isn't disappointed in me. 
So the word of encouragement to a thirsty soul can have a huge impact. Also, prayer. I won't quote the scriptures at you because I'm just preaching at the choir, but we believe that God can heal. And if God can resurrect Lazarus' four-day-old decomposing corpse, he can heal mental illness. And so we believe in that. And so we pray for those for healing and to experience that type of miraculous breakthrough in their lives. Absolutely, we do that. But we can also, Scripture talks about prayer in other ways when we're in these types of depths of darkness where we can pray in such a way to encourage our inner man in Romans 8. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so sometimes when we just don't know how to pray, or when we're the one that's suffering, and we're in that type of dark night of the soul, and we just don't know how to pray, we just have access to the Holy Spirit that's in us to pray through us, and to pray in tongues, and the gift of intercession, and these things can be so important in these times when we don't know what to do, or we're in that place of darkness. And then of course, Scripture. When it comes to helping others, Scripture can be so helpful for those who are dealing with it. Oftentimes where Scripture does help us in terms of some of this depression and mental illness is what it does is it gives us examples of the human experience so that you can know that you're not alone and that those that God loves and those that God uses have been through those things that you've gone through. For example, Jesus himself in Mark 14, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. In Isaiah 53, it tells us, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus knows the kind of suffering that you've been through. Jeremiah says, Cursed is the day I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Job says, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Jonah says, now, O Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Prophet Elijah in 1 Kings says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm not better than my ancestors. David in Psalm 88 says, from my youth I've suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors. I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbor, darkness is my closest friend. So we can just see and sense, feel this sense of identification with those, those who uh, are the holy men that have gone before us, men and women that have gone before us, who've dealt with these issues as well, and who God loved and who God used. And reading those in Scripture can be such an encouragement. And also, there's the encouragement through Scripture that we know that these types of sufferings and enduring through these types of things can be used so powerfully in our lives. In Ecclesiastes 7, it says this, It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay, heart to it, lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Again, Spurgeon says, those who've traversed the howling desert have things to say that nobody else really can. 
those who've endured that dark night of the soul, or like Jacob who wrestled with God and walked with a limp for the rest of his life. They have something to contribute to us, and those of you that endured these things have something to contribute to us and to others who are suffering that none of us can, who haven't endured those types of things. Then, of course, ultimately in Scripture, we have our ultimate hope that gives that we see in the Scriptures and in Christianity that no other place on this earth will be able to provide us the type of ultimate hope that we find in God. My favorite passage in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will not exist. Anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, the former things will cease to exist. So encouraging to know that there's an end. When we suffer this kind of pain, that it will end. And in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, Therefore, we do not despair, <laughs> even if our physical body is wearing away. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. Because we're not looking to what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what we can see is temporary, 